Um, you know, the, as pastors, I think sometimes, you know, y'all from the congregation look at us and think we've got our, our acts completely together. And, and the truth is, we don't. Uh, we, we certainly try. Uh, we certainly, you know, covet people's accountability and that sort of thing, um, which is healthy. Um, but we're going to be talking about the Lord of the Sabbath this morning, and that can be kind of an abstract concept. And I've been I've been wrestling, as as the uh, the other elders know, with with how to condense that into something that we can you know make tangible for for each other. Um, and and I, I came up with an illustration this morning, so hopefully this will this will help a little bit, kind of lead into what we're going to be talking about. Um, if you think about your relationships with people you're close to, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a best friend or something, you know, we often have those kind of brief interactions during the day. Hey, honey, how's it going? Or, or, or whatever. Um, but there are kind of sporadic times throughout those relationships when we really sit down and have a good conversation with that loved one. You know, something where you're really connecting heart to heart, where you're really refreshed and you really enjoy that person. You know, that, that takes deliberation. It takes deliberate action on our parts. And when we think about Christ, we have the opportunity to commune with our Lord and Savior, to spend that time of enjoyment and refreshment that He ordained in the Sabbath. So I hope as we, we get into this passage from John today that that, that thought will be with you and, and, and valuing that special time of enjoyment and refreshment that is the Sabbath um, will, will become forefront in your mind and grow in importance. I know it's something that I personally struggle with, which is probably why the Lord had me deal with this passage. Um, so, um, and, and for me, it's like, you know, I've got all these outside things that, that press against me that kind of pull away from that, that time of enjoyment. And so one of the challenges I, I put in the questions is, you know, if you've got it figured out, how to, how to, really deliberately, regularly set aside that precious time with Christ, um, you know, let me know because <laughs> I struggle with it. And I know lots of, lots of you guys struggle with that too. Um, so with that, um, please open your Bibles or your devices or whatever to John chapter 5. Uh, we're going to go from verse 1 and we're actually going to go all through, to, through uh, verse 18. I'm kind of stepping on David Geringer's territory just a little bit, uh, but he's going to step on mine next week from what I understand, so it's all fair. Uh, <laughs> so here we go with John chapter 5. Um, you know, traditions can be wonderful things. When, when I was a kid, uh, the Christmas season for, for my family, the, the Italian side, really kicked off just after Thanksgiving. So we had this thing called Cookie Day, all right? And um, on cookie day, my grandparents, my Nona and Papa, uh, would have their, their kids and, and all their, you know, offspring um, come over to their house in preparation for the Christmas season to come. Now, by my count, that's probably a good 25 people, okay? It's an Italian family, pretty big, lots of kids. Um, the men folk would go and decorate the house and, and set up the Christmas tree and decorate it with lights and all that fun stuff. And while that was going on, the women and children would, would hang out in the kitchen preparing these special Christmas cookies. And, and they were a, a regional specialty of the part of Italy that my grandfather came from. And, you know, when in the kitchen, there were, everybody had a specific role to play. You know, myself and my cousins and my sister, we would, we would shape the cookies. There were these cool little rose shapes. So you had to make these little boats from the dough and twirl them up in just a certain way. 
So that was our job. The ants would handle the, the more dangerous tasks like frying, you know. Um, and then my grandmother, of course, uh, was in charge of mixing and rolling out the special dough that was th the essence of these, these cookies. Um, and it was, it was great fun for us kids. You know, we were surrounded by, by our family. We were surrounded by love and laughter. And, of course, these delightful smells, which teased of the delicious cookies that we could enjoy when we were all back together again on Christmas Eve. And then one Christmas season... My papa died, followed about a week later by one of my uncles. And after that, we, we, we tried to keep that cookie day tradition alive for a few years, but, but the dynamic was never quite the same. And the various family groups drifted apart into their own Christmas traditions. And it seems the heart of that tradition had died along with papa. Now, that isn't to say that those sad things, you know, diminish the primary joy of the season, you know, the remembrance of Christ's birth. And, and sure, our family traditions changed, but we would still gather with loved ones to sing and eat, to enjoy, to rest, and to reflect. And, and interestingly enough, those are the same elements that are part of the Jewish Sabbath, which is the heart of, of Jewish worship and, of course, an important part of today's passage. Now, we read of the institution of the Sabbath way back in Exodus chapter 20. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The word Sabbath derives from Shabbat, meaning to cease or desist. And of course the implication is to cease from work. And so from Exodus 20 we learn that God made it a holy day. Exodus 31.17 adds this, It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Deuteronomy 5 further dedicates the Sabbath as a reminder that God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. In other words, the day of rest was intended to refocus the heart's of the people on the Lord their God. Now, while that was God's intention for the Sabbath, it seems that the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day had let the heart go out of that tradition. For most, it had devolved into a legalistic ritual devoid of any real heart impact. In John chapter 5, John presents the third sign to establish Jesus' authority as Lord of the Sabbath. That's important because the freedom Jesus demonstrates with his authority redeems the heart of the Sabbath. And it's important because it refocuses believers then, or, uh, then and now to enjoy and rest in God and his redemptive work. We need this reminder now as much as the Jews did then. And while we don't sit under the restrictive laws they did, 
we still need frequent Sabbath time with the Lord to rest and refresh. Our lives ultimately suffer without it. And let's see how that unfolds as we read the passage. So John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now, he's speaking just after the event we read about last week, the healing of the official son, Caburum. So after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now, let's pause for a minute here. Remember that John's desire is for his readers to come to saving faith in Christ. As such, his memoir would have to strike a tension between the supernatural events of Jesus' ministry and yet be grounded in the physical reality of the natural world in a way that his readers could relate to. You see, anyone familiar with Jerusalem back in John's day would have been able to locate the pool from John's description. Not only that, but they could have interviewed eyewitnesses who were there that day to confirm the healing we'll read about shortly. And in our day, archaeologists are reasonably convinced that a location in Jerusalem discovered in the 1800s is indeed the Pool of Bethesda, given how well it matches with this biblical description. We can have confidence in what's in the Bible Now, a little more background to help set the stage for the rest of the story. See, the Pool of Bethesda likely had served a variety of purposes during its existence. For Jewish pilgrims to Jerusalem, it would have served to facilitate ritual cleansing rites. Greeks, on the other hand, believed that healing spirits were present in spring-fed pools like the Pool of Bethesda. A disturbance of the water in the pool originating from the spring, like bubbles or ripples, was a person's sign to get into the pool for a possible healing miracle from these spirits. Now, in the ESV edition that we'll be reading from today, if you look really carefully, it omits verse 4, which is also omitted in the earliest manuscripts. Verse 4 is still recorded in the majority Greek text, and it talks about an angel or a messenger stirring up the water and bringing healing from time to time, as the reason for the multitude of folks just hanging around the pool. Now, when I was going through this, trying to digest this, it seemed to me that verse 4 was a little bit inconsistent with the rest of Scripture, in the sense of, I can't think of any other instance where an angel regularly performed miracles. So with that, we'll stick with the earliest manuscripts in this case. Now, Verse 4's inclusion may have been to explain why the sick were hanging around the pool, attracted by what was likely some sort of either popular urban legend, superstition, or for the Jews present, um, some, of, some sort of compromised form of Judaism that orbed, absorbed elements of Greek religious practice. We call it syncretism, big fancy word. And so with that in mind, let's continue. In these, so we're talking about the colonnades at the pool, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, 
I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now John doesn't elaborate on the mixture of people who are among the multitude. Given the cosmopolitan nature of Jerusalem, it was likely that the crowd of invalids included Jews and Greeks, certainly Romans, and others who were desperate for healing, desperate enough to take a chance on a Greek legend. In, any, in the case of any Jews present, they were essentially seeking help from pagan gods, violating the first commandment. And if we read between the lines of this passage a bit, it seems likely that this particular invalid was of Jewish descent. So Jesus seeks out this man who's been an invalid for 38 years. Now think about that. The average life expectancy back then was 55 years. Okay? That means he would have been dealing with this condition for most of his total lifetime. It's important to note that when Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed, the invalid doesn't directly answer the question, right? The invalid launches into a complaint as if trying to elicit assistance to help him into the pool. He doesn't know who he was talking to. He presents his answer as if there's no other way for him to be healed. Now, it's easy to get judgmental as we read this and say, why didn't the man just answer Jesus' question with a, yes, please? I mean, right? But when I think of those of us who have endured trials for a long period of time, I think we can relate to the tone of the passage. His hope for healing is pretty much gone, and it shows in his response to Jesus. And yet, and yet, there is still hope in his response, even if it's misplaced and singularly focused on what the man thinks is his only chance for healing. Notice also that Jesus didn't heal everyone at the pool, just this one man. I suppose that if, if Jesus had healed everyone, it would have caused quite the uproar and hindered Jesus' ability to teach. He would have become a spectacle instead of a savior. And this is actually another great example of what Jason highlighted last week. Jesus is sovereign and free to do what he pleases with the unlimited ability to bring about that which he wills, regardless of the constraints of the natural world or people's expectations. Think about that. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Let's continue in the passage. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who, had been, who has been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Say what? I mean, a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years gets supernaturally healed, and all these guys can say to him, say to him it's like, you know, shame, shame, you carried your sleeping mat on the Sabbath. 
What is that deal? If their hearts were really intending to honor God by keeping the Sabbath holy, they should have recognized the miracle as a gift of love from God and honored Him with their praises. Why? Because only someone empowered by God could perform such a miracle, as was attested to by many examples in their Torah, right? They read the Torah all the time. There's all these examples of, of healing, empowered by God. How did they miss it? Dead hearts. They were zealous in guarding their traditions of not working on the Sabbath, but had lost sight of the heart behind the tradition to honor God by deliberately setting aside time to focus on Him and remembering His redemptive work. I don't know about you, I think a miracle on the Sabbath is a pretty great way to get people refocused on God. Yeah? Continuing on in the, in the story here. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, we have to be a bit careful with this exchange. See, if you're like me, you probably read this as, and assume a, a simple cause and effect relationship between a sin this man committed and his paralysis. An alternate translation puts it in a slightly different light. See you are well. Now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to learn from chapter, John chapter 9 that trials we experience are not necessarily brought on by sin. They might be, but they can also be for our growth or to demonstrate God's power. In the case of the invalid, we can potentially point to his ongoing sin that he sought help from other sources than God, right? We said a moment ago he was violating the first commandment by going to this superstitious place for healing. Whatever the case is, Jesus is calling him to repentance. And we think about it, what's worse than paralysis? Eternal spiritual death. The passage continues. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Before we look at the bigger picture of that last verse, let me focus on that last sentence. Right? My father is working until now, and I am working. The workaholics among us, myself included, as my wife can painfully testify, too, could easily read that as justification for their constant striving, right? Okay. The logic would go something like this. I'm supposed to emulate Jesus. Jesus is working as he sees the Father working. My work is a form of worship. Therefore, I'm going to just be worshiping God more by working all the time since the Father and Jesus are working until now. Now, there's a couple of interpretive errors in that line of thinking. First of all, none of us is Jesus. We aren't in supernaturally resurrected bodies, and so we aren't supernaturally equipped to be working all the time. And second, even though God is working until now, 
as he upholds the universe by the word of his power, remember that from Hebrews chapter 1, God still rested on the seventh day. And third, even Jesus during his earthly ministry would steal away for quiet times of prayer from everyone. That's rest, folks. So like the admonition to pray without ceasing, right? It's, that's not being called to literally pray 24-7, 365. But the idea here is not that God the Father and God the Son, and by extension us, are to be constantly working. That's not the point. Rather, the idea is to have a willingness to do God's will, share the gospel, right? Wherever and whenever he presents us with an opportunity to do so. Note to self, you can't be ready to do God's will if you aren't partaking of the Sabbath blessing of rest and refreshment. Continuing in the passage, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, if the Sabbath is about honoring God and remembering his redemption, we see both of these fulfilled in Jesus' healing of the man. See, the healing itself would bring honor and glory to God, And the charge to sin no more is essentially telling the man to repent and believe. Those are the necessary conditions for redemption in Christ, right? If the Jews had been paying attention, the Lord of the Sabbath was honoring the intent of the Sabbath on the Sabbath. See that? The other thing they missed is that his equating himself to God wasn't an idle or blasphemous boast. The miracle proved he had power from God. So his statement, my father is working until now and I am working, was meant to glorify God by acknowledging to the Jews where his power came from. Now, establishing Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath would have been helpful for witnessing to Jews about how Jesus is their Messiah because it connected him directly to their time-honored Sabbath tradition all the way back to its origins in Genesis. But what about us Gentiles? Let's continue with that thought that the pool had some connection to a pagan superstition. If that's the case, then there was a whole bunch of people pointlessly waiting around that pool for some angel or spirit to stir up the waters and bring them healing, right? But they would have seen Jesus heal this man just by speaking to him. No water stirred up needed. He just spoke to him. Jesus would have been establishing his authority over the pagan gods as well. And if you think about it, that last point is also consistent with the other two signs. At the wedding in Canaan, he turned water into wine, demonstrating his power over nature. I'm not aware of any historically factual account of Dionysus or Bacchus, the Greek and Roman gods of wine, doing anything of that sort, right? The healing of the official son we heard about last week, Apollo and Vejovis seem to have failed to actually heal anyone. Those are more of those 
quote-unquote gods from the Greek and Roman pantheon. As for the pool of Bethesda, the Greek god Asclepius seems to have kept a lot of people waiting. Now let me be clear about something. In establishing himself as Lord over the Sabbath, Jesus wasn't abolishing the original intent of the Sabbath. As we see, saw in Exodus chapter 30, it was a practice established forever for man's benefit, right? Remember in Mark chapter 2, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What Jesus was doing was redeeming the rest and refreshment, that enjoyment of God to be in and through himself as our Redeemer. We still need that blessing. You see, left to our own devices, and I am very guilty of this, we will either use that downtime to gratify our fleshly desires or will not set aside time to commune with our Maker or will be forced by others, by outside things, to work when we have otherwise set that time aside for worship. Whatever the case, the result is that our relationship with God suffers. Right? I don't know about you guys, but during the week, I can feel my heart drift. If I don't, if I don't get that time of refreshment with the Lord, I, I just feel it. And the longer that goes on, you get dead to that drift. And as a result, your soul starts to get cold. See, knowing our tendencies, God established the Sabbath so we would remember Him. It was never about a strict legalistic obedience, even one whitewashed in the affectations of honoring God. In Christ, we are freed from the strict requirements of the Jewish laws. But as the Sabbath was given for our benefit, we still need to pursue Sabbath rest. Not just, now I'll get to it, not just, oh, it's Sunday. I, I think I can work it in. Pursue Sabbath rest. And we need to guard against it becoming a dead tradition. Why? Because sin nature is still with us. And the more we pursue the Sabbath, the less chance there will be of it becoming a dead tradition. It's alive. It renews our hearts. Why? Because as I mentioned, that frequency, that frequent Sabbath taking refresh, refreshes our hearts by the joy of that quality time with our Redeemer. If the worship team would please come up. You know, if we think about it, it seems Jesus has actually been reaching out to a lot of different people through this sign. To the Jews, he's saying, you've lost sight of the heart behind the tradition of the Sabbath me. To the Gentiles, he's saying, your gods are dead. Come to me and receive living water. But what's he saying to us? I think it could be something like this. I am the one true God. Repent and believe in me. Get to know me and you will find joy and rest and healing for your body and your soul. As the great theologian Jason Churchill said, this is truly the point. Jesus is our rest. 
What does persistent trust in Jesus look like? Finding our rest and restoration in communion with the Lord of the Sabbath. If you're overwhelmed, exhausted, anxious, seemingly at your wit's end, then you need to persist in coming to Him for relief rather than turning to traditions or forms of recreation or the sort. Let's pray. Father God, I think all of us here stand guilty of neglecting your Sabbath, not appreciating the gift that it is, kind of working it in when we can instead of pursuing it. And through that, pursuing you, I know I am. Please forgive us of that, Lord. Please refresh and renew our hearts with a love for spending time with you, deep time, not just a minute here and a minute there, but pursuing a deep time of refreshment that our hearts could be renewed, our joy can be renewed, our strength can be renewed in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.